Good morning, everybody. Welcome to January's edition of Mountain Radio Astronomy. I'm Sue Ann Heatherly, and joining me today is our friendly neighborhood amateur astronomer, Bob Anderson. He's going to talk to us about what's up in the night sky. Thanks for being with us again here in January, Bob. Thanks for the chance to come. So tell us what we can look forward to seeing when it's clear and beautiful. Well, between snowflakes and rain squalls and breezy nights, if you can get out on a clear night, the moon has been very pretty uh, over the past few nights, passing close to Mars and then through the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters little cluster of stars. And then as it goes into the morning sky, it'll be close to Jupiter in a, about a week's time. The moon goes through phases that everybody can see, and uh, oftentimes, you can uh, see the man in the moon, but a lot of people are not familiar with the lady in the moon as well. And you can go to a website and just, you know, on any search engine and look for the lady in the moon and see what, how that should look. And that's kind of neat to look for at full moon time. Another thing that you can see in the night sky is the constellation Orion that we've talked about. That's one of my favorites. It's uh, really neat to scan it with a pair of binoculars and look at the sword of Orion and see the uh, nebula that's uh, a nursery for stars as well as for dying stars, astronomers tell us now. And around it is all kinds of little clusters of stars and a faint halo of gas from, that's centered around the Orion constellation. Tell us a little bit about the stars of the Orion constellation. You can see uh, up in the shoulder of Orion a really quite red star. What's going on there? Yeah, it looks as red as Mars does when Mars is further away from the Earth. That's Betelgeuse, a funny name for a, a big star that is getting close to the end of its life. It's a huge red star. If I remember correctly, it's many hundreds of times the size of our sun. And as it got bigger, it cools off and the uh, the temperature looks reddish to the eye. The other stars in Orion, if you go and look at the other shoulder, it's kind of a bluish star. You go down to the lower right-hand corner is Rigel. It's a very bright blue star. And then Syaph is the other one. The three stars in the belt also have names, and they sound funny too. It's Alnalam, Alnatak, and Mintaka. Very good. So you can, <laughs> you can look all those up and uh, learn a little bit about them. All those names, of course, came from the Arabs and mean different things. Like Betelgeuse means the armpit of the giant. Well, that's so. an appropriate name because yeah. it's right up there in the shoulder <laughs> area, right? Yes. Now, if you look at the uh, stars that make up Orion's belt, that's what clues them in that they're looking at Orion. And if you draw a line between those three stars downward toward the horizon, you, you end up at a really bright, bright star in the night sky. That's Sirius. That's the brightest star in the sky other than the planets, Venus and Jupiter, and sometimes Mars and uh, I guess Mercury and Saturn may get close to its brilliance. But for the most part, it's the brightest known star that we can see in the sky from where we are standing and looking. And it's uh, in the constellation of the dog, and so it's sometimes called the dog star. Mm -hmm. So are there uh, planets we can look forward to seeing this month? Yes, uh, close to overhead is the planet Mars, 
Uh, we were closest to it back in October, and we're speeding ahead of it now in our orbit. And so Mars gets a little dimmer and uh, actually looks a little more red uh, to the eye as we get further away. Right now it looks kind of an orange color and still real easy to pick out. It was close to the moon the other night, and uh, a lot of people noticed that. And in a month from now, the same thing will happen. It'll be close to the moon. In the east sky, coming up about 8 or 9 o'clock, is the planet Saturn. And anybody that has any kind of telescope at all should go out and look for Saturn. It's a bright star. Uh, again, it comes up above the horizon about 8 or 9 o'clock. If you can wait till 9 or 10 when it's up higher, point your telescope at it, and any kind of telescope will show the rings of Saturn. And that is something that's really neat to see for your own, for your own self. In the morning sky, about 6 o'clock in the morning, as light is starting to filter into the dark sky, you'll see the planet Jupiter uh, in the east uh, near the dawn. And it's uh, also very good to point a telescope at, and you'll actually see some lines on it with any size telescope. And you will also see the four moons that Galileo first saw with his telescope as well. Well, Bob, thanks so much for being with us again. We're going to go out and take a look at Orion and see what we can see, and I'll talk to you again next month. Thank you, and look forward to it. Our next guest on Mountain Radio Astronomy is Yuri Kovalev who has been an astronomer here at the uh, National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Green Bank for the last three years. He's been doing a postdoctoral appointment, and I just had to interview him because he's getting ready to go back to Russia, and I wanted to make sure we got a chance to talk with him first. So thank you so much for being with us this morning, Yuri. Thank you, and hello. All right, so uh, everybody can listen and hear that Yuri does have somewhat of an accent. I know I do too, but mine's different. <laughs> Mine's what you call a southern accent. Uh, Yuri, you're from Russia, right? Uh, yes, I am. And actually speaking about accent, I remember our first daughter, uh, okay, first and only daughter, was born several months before we left. And um, Ken Kellerman from actually the observatory was visiting us that time and they gave us some, actually to her, some presents. And uh, it was mentioned that we should expect a hilly-billy accent from her. So it was the first time I learned this um, word hilly-billy. So I'm not sure if I understand even now what it actually means, but um, hopefully um, my accent now is uh, something in between Russian, actually German, and probably a little of hilly one. <laughs> that would be good. We want you to take a little bit of the, the mountains back with you. First of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about your life in Russia? I think that would be of interest to people. And perhaps a little bit about your schooling there as well. What was it like for you growing up in Russia? How's it different from here? I would tell that the main difference is not uh, the difference between two countries. The main difference is difference between a small town like Greenbank and uh, the biggest city of our country, Moscow. So it it uh, it was it was interesting because first of all I was born in Soviet Union, so it is it is funny because now we are all in different the different countries and when you when you fill all these forms they ask you where you are born so you 
put Soviet Union. So actually, we all were born in a country which never exists, but we are still <laughs> born there. So it was kind of interesting. And uh, I was growing up just uh, during that time when everything was changing. And I don't think that anyone ever wants to go through this um, because some some of the years were really terrible. And uh, thank you. Uh, th thanks very much for particularly some people from the NRAO and even from the American Astronomical Society because they did help us through uh, to survive uh, through these um, difficult times. So I went to the biggest university of our country, which is located, of course, in the biggest city of our country, which was nice because I didn't have to rent any apartment. I was just staying home. And um, I've spent five and a half years. Our system is a little different than here. Uh, when we graduate, we graduate with the Master of Science degree. So the bachelor degree is optional. You might have it, you might not, but you should finish with Master of Science degree to be allowed to have some sort of um, high-level jobs. And then you just decide if you want to go to, in our case, we don't call it a graduate school, we call it a PhD education because it takes only three years and you just go from your Master of Science degree to the PhD degree. So I went to the Lebedev Physical Institute, which is uh, the biggest and main institute in physics of Russian Academy of Sciences. And it is also a little different in Russia. We have um, the Russian Academy of Sciences is extremely, is very rich and powerful organization. It is like a country inside the country um, because it gets uh, not all the money which are spent on fundamental science, but uh, I would say majority, okay? Okay, so it takes about eight and a half years total to get uh, PhD. Uh, yeah, it, uh, yes, it is. Uh, yes, it is very correct. And I actually have forgotten to mention one more thing, which I think might be the most exciting to uh, Americans, because our education is still free. You apply, you pass all these uh, written and oral uh, tests, and then if you are successful, you just you just get into the university, and all your study is free. It is supported by the government. Of course, if you are not so, um, how to put it, um, bright and... Um, and dedicated, uh, too. Yes, you can have um, your parents to help you and y you can get uh, education, of course, for money. But I believe that all of you would prefer to just uh, spend a little more time on studying during your uh, first 10 years in, in the elementary, middle and high school and then just um, have this good education for free. All the best universities in the country are free if you, of course, are able to get in. To get in. Yep. So when you uh, began your studies at the university there, did you know that you wanted to study astronomy right away? Yes, I did, uh, although I I was not a kind of kid who liked to look on, on, on the sky and know all the constellations. I don't know them even now, only probably five or ten of them, which is terrible. However, uh, my father was an astronomer, so it is his fault. When you got your PhD, were you studying, were you doing radio astronomy at this time? Yes, I was, and actually this was the reason why I went to um, the Lebedev Physical Institute for my PhD education because this uh, is one of the, actually probably the best place, uh, certainly in Moscow it is the best place to study radio astronomy. So I actually made a decision to do radio astronomy and actually working on um, galaxies um, during my 
I would say during my first years in the university and I had some offers to to switch the field uh, some really very nice offers but uh, no I did I decided that galaxies is the most cool thing all right so let's talk a little bit about the kinds of uh, objects that you do study what are your research interests uh, my research interest um, are quasars which are the most distant objects in the universe and uh, as I told here um, some time ago I, I was explained many many years ago I was that time visiting um, the 22 meter radio telescope in Crimea actually it was um, the telescope which was used for one of the first uh, international VLBI experiments between Green Bank 140 um, foot telescope and um, that 22 meter in Crimea. So there uh, I gave a colloquium and in the beginning, uh, I believe it was a director there who told that, and quite a lot of people there are doing uh, sun, so solar astronomy. So it, he told that the, the coolest thing in astronomy is to do cosmology, yes, because it is even not about objects, it's about the whole universe. Then the second coolest thing uh, are the most distant objects, galaxies, quasars. Then it is our galaxy, then it is solar system, sun and planets. So that might be another reason why I like to, um, to continue working on, on quasars, because uh, when you hear something and when you're young, it probably is sitting well, very deep inside you. So quasars are still my love. All right. Now, quasar, the word quasar... Um, is sort of an abbreviation of what these objects were originally called. They were called quasi-stellar objects because they looked like stars. That's where the stellar came in, or they were just bright point-like objects. Why are they called quasi-stellar objects? Uh, they did um, look like stars, and uh, originally people uh, thought that they are stars. Um, the strange thing happened when people tried to um, investigate them in more details. Um, they have people have observed the optical spectrum of these uh, stars. Okay, st let's call them stars for now, and uh, the spectrum looked very, very, very strange. So it was almost impossible to explain uh, this kind of spectrum and. Actually, when you explain a spectrum, you uh, uh, you know from a theory and from experiments which, which you have made here on the ground uh, how an, an, an emission of a given element will look like. And then you just compare this theoretical prediction or your okay ground experiment with what you see, and from that you can um, tell how much, I don't know, oxygen, uh, magnum, hydrogen, whatever it is on, on the sky. And people were not able to find any element which would um, coincide with the spectrum they, they, they have found. That is why these objects, uh, people started to call this object quasi-stellar objects because they looked like stars, but uh, they were very strange. They were like quasi-stars. And it turns out that these objects are not part of our galaxy at all, but whole galaxies that are... How far away are they? Oh, um, yeah, it's always difficult to tell how far away are they because uh, if I tell you 10 to the power of something, it doesn't make any, any, any big sense. So let's say that the light from them will come to Earth in the billions of years. Wow. So these are really the most distant 
objects in the universe. Yes, and what is even more exciting and probably um, more depressing is that you should understand that what we see right now is what was emitted uh, billions of years ago. And as a result, it means that what we are observing, what we are investigating, probably doesn't exist right now, which is really kind of uh, archaeology probably, right? Now, you use uh, not just one dish, one radio dish, to study these objects. You use a special kind of, of telescope to study these objects. Tell us about the instruments that you need in order to get a good look at these quasars. What we are using is a very strange thing, and uh, actually, originally, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it was uh, this idea was proposed by Soviet um, scientists, Matvienko, um, Kardashov, and Sholomitsky. The idea is that we uh, observe uh, this or any other objects at different telescopes located at different parts uh, of the of the of the planet, probably at different continents, in the same time and uh, write the signal separately on whatever you have, tape, uh, devices, discs, and then uh, we send all these uh, tapes or disc in, discs in one place, correlate the signal at this one place, reduce this data, and it is kind of tricky data reduction technique, and as a result, we can get an image of an object which has an unprecedented uh, angular resolution. So the angular resolution is um, of an order of one millimeter second, which um, it's something on the order of if you if you're if you're in Green Bank, and you could read the New York Times in New York City. I mean, we're talking about really, really fine detail that you can see with this technique. Yes, yes, it is very correct and. And the most important thing, actually, is that you should know where this New York Times in New York is located. Right. As soon as you know, yes, you can read it. So you use uh, VLBI techniques, as you said, and that stands for Very Long Baseline. Interferometry, correct. Interferometry. Yes, and uh, uh, by very long, we mean just as long as you can ever have your telescope. You can even send your radio telescope into space and have it very, very long, so-called space ground baseline interferometry, which will increase your resolution even, even more. So in a way, it's sort of like faking a big telescope by using lots of little ones. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, this big telescope is, will be mostly located, uh, mostly consist of holes between telescopes. But uh, as long as you mentioned this, I have heard ideas some time ago that in, in the far future, we will be able to use cell phones for this thing. As a result, and as you know, cell phones are located almost everywhere. So um, I don't know, is it realistic or not, but it's kind of neat idea, I, I think you would agree. Right, right, it is. Okay, so tell us about these quasars. These are, are extremely distant objects, but they're also very bright. And so you're able to see them even though they are you know, 10 billion light years away. What's going on? What are these objects? Yes, to me it is even uh, the, the most exciting. So they are so distant and we still can see them, which is, which is really, really, really strange. Uh, so these objects, quasars, are actually cores of distant active galaxies. Uh, these are relativistic jets, relativistic electrons, 
which uh, emit synchrotron radiation and we believe that um, the main reason why we see them so bright is because they are looking at us because when they are looking at us um, so-called beaming effect happens it is a relativistic effect which uh, brightens the uh, this emission even even more than than it originally is so the luminosity of these objects the power which we see is actually not the intrinsic power this is power uh, relativistically beamed toward us i was recently at a meeting and i saw a cool demo and what they did to illustrate sort of what's going on near the core of these galaxies was put a flashlight in a bagel. Mm -hmm. So the bagel was like this um, disk of material near the very center of the core. Mm -hmm. And when they had the flashlight on, they would show that if the flashlight's pointing straight up and the disk is flat, you can't see that much, but mm -hmm. then you can tilt it and see the light coming from the flashlight. So I thought that was kind of yeah, it kind is, of it cool. Is, it is it is very it is very good example. Uh, but you know that we are in kind of problem because of that, because uh, there are many more distant objects which we actually can see right now, and we are extremely selective observing these distant objects because we actually are able to see only the ones which are looking at us. That is why if you want to learn something, um, something general about these objects, you really want to observe a lot of them. So you will have enough statistics to draw um, significant conclusions about them. Because, you know, if you, for example, want to learn something about people living in, uh, let's say, in Green Bank area, right? Ask me who is uh, our neighbor. And our neighbor is Russian as well. It is it's sort of coincidence, but it is the case. So we can draw from this that, okay, all the people living in Green Bank are Russian, right? And so this is wrong. That is why we would like to speak not only with our own neighbor, but also with all the people around. And then we learn that, okay, mm, strange thing. Most of them are Americans. Probably we are United States. <laughs> so the same is with, with quasars. And we have a very big um, program right now going on with uh, the very long baseline array. This is now a um, network operated by uh, the NRAO and supported by American taxpayers. And this is really a cool thing. And this is the only dedicated um, VLBI facility in the world, which is working day and night at different VLBI projects. And we observe uh, of an order of 200 sources right now. And we do hope that having this uh, huge statistics, we will be able to tell uh, something not only about our own neighbor, right, but on, also about uh, the whole Green Bank area. That's very good analogy. So these objects have jets. You, you talked about some jets of electrons that are creating radio emission. What, what do you think is going on in the cores of these galaxies that, that creates these jets that you can see with very large networks of telescopes. In, in the very center of these objects, um, you can find a supermassive black hole. Although I probably made several mistakes in this sentence, first of all, uh, it is very difficult to find it. And um, uh, second, the problem is that you cannot observe the black hole. So actually, what you all what you can observe is um, 
some things which are happening around this black hole, for example, material which is uh, flying around. And from the um, gravitational law, you can estimate what should be a mass of the supermassive black hole. There are some other ways to estimate the mass. So we know that the mass of these black holes is of an order of uh, 1 billion solar masses. And uh, so around this, uh, this is a very compact, why it is a black hole, it is extremely compact object. It is so compact and so heavy, so the gravity is so strong there, so even light cannot leave this object. That is why it is black hole. It's, um, it is really very cool words, but it, it means nothing else but that light cannot leave this surface. So even if you... We can make a black hole even from a, our own planet. You, you should only uh, make a, probably a nut. Um, <laughs> so if you like could squeeze the planet down into the size of a walnut, you might have a black hole. Right. That is the right word I was thinking about. Squeeze. Right. If you squeeze the planet to, to the walnut, probably. I should, again, I am very bad about numbers, so I, 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 you should really, it is very easy to, to estimate it, but probably something like a nut. Um, yes, and our planet will be a black hole, so uh, a light will be not able to leave this um, size around uh, this area around this net. Okay, so um, around this black hole, supermassive black hole, it is an accretion disk. Material is flying around this black hole and is accreting on this black hole. So it is pro is providing more more power and more matter to this black hole. And some of this material is. Um, I don't know what would be the best word to use, rearranged, reworked by this black hole or in, in these regions around the black hole and is uh, pushed out in, in a form of this um, highly collimated, highly relativistic jets which we are observing. And really, uh, over the last several decades that people have been studying quasars, a black hole seems to be the best explanation for how you can get these jets, right? Right. And um, even it was so good. So people even uh, started to work with with black hole as with an object which was actually really observed. And they started to forget that it is still only an interpretation. So I remember uh, my supervisor suggested me to use the black hole word in, in the title of my thesis. And I was very unhappy about this suggestion because I, I do believe in black holes. I don't have any reason not to think that it is a black hole there. But I still uh, am a little concerned about things which we don't see and we forget that this is only an explanation, although a very good one. And I believe that today we can clearly say that, yes, there are black holes there and actually many other places in, in, in the universe. Even in our own Milky Way, but it's not as, it's not a big one, right? Yes, it's it is just... a very small one. Yeah. Okay. It's like, like a coin in your pocket comparing with your probably account in the bank. <laughs> okay. Well, not mine. <laughs> a coin <laughs> in my pocket and my account at the bank are not that different. Okay. Okay. So, uh, Yuri, you're getting ready to go back to Russia. Is that right? Is that your first stop? Yes, yes it is. Yes it is. So tell us what you're looking forward to doing when you get back. Uh, actually, that is the most exciting part because I'm hoping to do the same thing uh, as what I was doing here. I'm going to come back to Moscow and uh, I will have a job in Astrospace Center of Lebedev Physical Institute. I'm going to be a staff 
um, scientists there and I will have almost 100% of my time for science and I do hope to continue uh, what I was doing here and actually even before. Now your wife is also, is she an astronomer as well? Uh, yes, she is. She's a theoretician. So she is actually um, working on the accretion disks I, I mentioned. Uh, and she's very good at it, um, although she is mostly working on accretion disks on um, small objects which you can um, see in our galaxies, in, in our galaxy. Um, and this is another reason why we're excited coming back because she will be able to continue her research because right now having two kids and she was sitting home, uh, she uh, started to be kind of crazy about <laughs> how much or how little time she has every day, day to work. So probably will be, she will be more lucky and have more time in Russia because we hope to put our at least the oldest one in kindergarten. That's right. Well, good luck to you, Yuri. We've sure enjoyed having you in Green Bank, and I, I hope even though you're going clear over to Moscow that you won't be a stranger to us. Uh, thank you, and I very much hope that uh, I will be no stranger. And let me just add that these three years here were probably uh, one of the best time in our life, and we love Green Bank so much. And it might sound strange, but we leave Green Bank not because we don't like it. We probably leave it uh, opposite because we like it uh, and it, it is just time to move on. And it is really difficult for us and we will love Green Bank forever. And we, we like the community. It is really great place and great people. And uh, let me thank again all the people around. They, will, they were all so friendly to us. They helped us so much and it is it is really great thank you guys you're very good we're out of time for this month's edition of mountain radio astronomy i hope you enjoyed the show today i enjoyed doing it yuri was a, a fabulous guest i hope you agree and we will talk to you in february thanks for joining us